I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. You know, sometimes when we're young, sometimes when we're old, we ask ourselves, what's the meaning of life? What am I doing here? And it may be that love and compassion, concern for others, kindness is our reason for being here. Our guest today is foremost a kind, giving, smart, and all-around beautiful human being. And if that were all Dr. Barry Curzon was, it would be more than enough. But Barry is also a Buddhist monk, a personal physician to the Dalai Lama, and the founder of both the Human Values Institute in Japan and the U.S.-based Altruism and Medicine Institute, which teaches resilience to healthcare workers through training in compassion and mindfulness. He has been profiled in media outlets around the world, including PBS and CNN, and in the past three decades has spoken in countries in Europe and North America, as well as Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, Russia, and Mongolia, to name but a few. And if all of that were not sufficiently interesting, his brain has been studied by both Princeton University and the University of Wisconsin as part of their quests to understand the effects of long-term meditation. We are honored to have him here with us today. Dr. Barry Curzon, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you very much, Grant. I'm curious how you met His Holiness and how that association began. Can you just tell us that story? It was about 30-some years ago. I was at a the second Mind and Life conference being held in Laguna Beach, California. About 20 people there, including His Holiness, his secretary. During that a week-long conference, his secretary allowed me to have a few words with him. I said, Your Holiness, I would like to do a meditation retreat on the Buddhist wisdom, the shunyata, the emptiness. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he looked up for the longest time, and then he said, shunyata bodhicitta 50-50, in a very firm, loud voice. And I felt like this lightning bolt had gone right through my chest, through my heart. What had occurred to me was I had to practice not only the Buddhist wisdom, but also the love and compassion, uh, maybe equally, because he said 50-50. And that has stayed which with is, me. Which is what bodhicitta means. Oh, sorry, bodhicitta is the full form of compassion. So right. we translate that often as uh, as universal compassion. And that stayed with me even to this moment, you know, studying and, 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 and reflecting and meditating and, you know, cultivating these important wisdom and compassion. A few years later, His Holiness called me in in Dharamsala. So I've lived in Dharamsala for 32 years, and I practice medicine there all on a charitable basis, 100%. And so his Holiness the Dalai Lama called me in, and he said to me, he said, I'm planning to go to Rio de Janeiro to an important environmental conference, and our office just got word that there is a cholera outbreak in Rio. And he basically, not in these words, but he basically said, should I go? So I was pretty nervous. I said, well, Your Holiness, I, I think it would be safe for you to go. We'll have to take precautions there's a vaccine. It's not 100%, but it'll give you reasonable protection. He thanked me. I left. I heard through the grapevine. He called in his main Tibetan medicine doctor, 
who has since passed. His name uh, was Dr. Tenzin Chodak. And I heard again through the grapevine that Dr. Tenzin Chodak advised him, too dangerous, don't go. And then a few days later, he calls me back in and he says, I've decided that I want to go. It's an important event. And I would like to receive the cholera vaccine. So I gave him the injection. And now I was doubly nervous, one, to be around him. And two, you never draw blood from a Buddha. So when you give an injection, an intramuscular injection, which this was, you put the needle in the muscle, you know, you inject, and then you pull back before you push in the medicine to see if there's any blood in the hub of the syringe. And if there is, it means you're in a blood vessel and you have to reposition or withdraw the needle, the syringe. So I withdrew a little bit on the syringe and there was no blood. And inside there was this huge, like, <laughs> I'm not blood, blood <laughs> And I went ahead and I gave him the color vaccine. Since that time, he didn't need anything medically for many years. But then he had some gall- gallbladder issues about 15 years ago, and he eventually needed surgery. And he called me in. And since that time, I've been regularly involved with his medical care. You started wondering, though, about the nature of life at a pretty young age, as I recall. You were still five or six or something when you started asking yourself pretty deep questions. Can you say something about that? I think I was around five or six. When I'd lie in my room, I would lay awake in the bed and I'd look at the corner of the room where the two walls came together. And sometimes the walls started to recede to a point where I was, I felt like I was just a speck. And I felt like in the whole grand scheme of things, I was not, you know, very important. It was not very significant, my life. And what happened was the anxiety and that I had as a kid seemed in those moments to melt away. But it forced me to begin to ask myself, you know, who am I? When you were a slightly older child, at about 11, you had a health scare that also, I think, factored into how you viewed yourself and life itself. Yes. I was a very active kid, always outside playing. And one day I was out playing and I got this severe headache, which is something that I never had before. And I went inside and laid down, which is something I never did before, and waited for my mother to come home. When she did, she saw that I was in distress. And so either that day or the next, she called the pediatrician who came out to see me, examined me, gave some medicine, and said, let's see how this goes. Well, the next day wasn't any better, and I wasn't sleeping, and I was in a lot of pain. And I was sent to St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And after a few days, I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse and had uh, some major seizures, epileptic fits. And then I went into a coma, and I was in a coma for maybe a month. Then I kind of came to, and then they did surgery on me several times. I had surgery on the very crown of my head. They figured there must be an abscess somewhere. And they went in there, and they found the abscess. They drained it. The bone on the top, the skull bone on the top was rotten with osteomyelitis, and they removed that, probably the size of a medium-sized grapefruit. And osteomyelitis is, is what? 
infection of the bone because ah. of the underlying brain abscess. Wow. Yeah, I slowly got better. And uh, well, because of this experience nearly dying as a child, and what I saw was being saved, my life being saved by the neurosurgeon, Maxwell Andler, he became my hero just automatically. And I just wanted to be like him. From that age, I had this deep-seated, heartfelt passion to serve others, to be a doctor and to be able to serve others, help others. Then we get to another punctuation point in your life, obviously medical school. But something happens in that whole time. And can you talk a little bit to us about that? Yeah, I'm getting a little teared up, which I don't often do. But uh, uh, when I was a third-year medical student, uh, my mother died of ovarian cancer. And I was very close to my mother. I loved her dearly. And I lost the person I loved the most in life. I'm asking all of these biographical questions because, of course, your marriage becomes another one of these punctuation points in life. You're married and you're studying and then you're practicing and then something happens with your wife. Yeah, so I was in my first year of practicing as a family doctor in Ojai, California. And Judy, my wife and I, we had gone skiing and she would fall a lot, which was unusual for her. Mm. She'd call it quits early in the day, unusual for her. Mm. And so when we got home, it persisted. And so we decided to go get her checked out. And we saw who was, who was a good friend of ours, an OBGYN person that examined her and thought there was a mass in her pelvis and wanted to operate on it. And so I'm sitting in the doctor's changing room in that podunk hospital, and Rich is operating on her. And then after a while, uh, Rich came out of the surgery, and basically he said, he, he was in tears because we were all very close friends. He said, don't buy any long playing records. You know, she has ovarian cancer, and it's uh, advanced. And uh, she then lived for three and a half years. Uh, we knew we were living on borrowed time. It was compressed time. We, you know, did trips to the high Sierras in California on horseback with friends. And, and then coming down, we hiked and, you know, where we hiked in between, I carried two backpacks and, you know, she was able to do it. And we went to Tahiti, we went to Cancun on club meds, which we never would have done. We always loved orchestrating those kind of trips ourselves, but, you know, we couldn't. And they turned out to be marvelous. And she did die about a month later. Um, I'm and sorry it, to make you go over. I know it's very painful to, to it, it even is, now. You know, I'm over a lot of the pain. And so my tears are sadness, but also the joy of love, having spent 14 years with this beautiful woman. Uh, I know many people don't have that experience, you know, over decades. So I feel very, very fortunate. And then how do you go from that experience as a medical professional losing somebody dear to you, um, on the heels of losing another person dear to you. How do you go from that to Dharamsala, India, and becoming a Tibetan Buddhist monk? Well, uh, <laughs> it was step by step. <laughs> One thing I left out about my childhood is we would go out to dinner with the family, and 
my boat was always for Indian food because you could eat with your fingers and mother couldn't say anything, you know. So I had this thing about India since I was a kid. And so I went off to India by myself and I spent about six months traveling with a backpack around all of India. I saw so many places. And then as planned, I went to Nepal and, you know, I, I really had a good time. And on that trek, someone said to me, well, have you ever been to a monastery in Nepal called Kopan Monastery? I said, no, never heard about it. And they said, well, they're holding a month-long teaching, and you might enjoy that. You might want to check it out. Lama Zopa Rinpoche, uh, Zopa Rinpoche, was giving a talk on the Buddhist wisdom, on emptiness, shunyata. And after that morning uh, discussion, we had lunch. So I got my lunch and sat on the top of this, uh, you know, shack. And then I had two hallucinations. Mind you, no drugs. <laughs> I saw in front of me a large Native American teepee. And I saw myself crawling up the side, the outside. And I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was going to the top so I could look inside to see what's inside of Barry, what's Barry made of. You know, who am I? Hmm. And I looked inside, and I can see inside as I did then. I can see it right now. There was nothing inside the teepee. And I freaked. I mean, I freaked. I started (laughs) shaking. I felt that I didn't exist. And it was frightening deeply. I mean, to my core, I was frightened. And slowly over probably, I don't know, hours, I guess, it calmed down and But it came back. It kept coming back for months. It was a powerful, life-changing experience for me. It was kind of the hook that, in retrospect, I would say that I'm a Buddhist. What happens next for Barry Curzon is he he merges his interest in these big life and philosophical issues with his interest in medicine. And you practice medicine in India. You become the physician to the Dalai Lama. I I think that now brings us up to the point to talk about this intersection of mindfulness and Buddhism and medicine as a practice, which you manifested in part through the Human Values Institute and more recently through the Altruism and Medicine Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about each of those? 14 years ago, I was invited to Japan by His Holiness the Dalai Lama's representative to give a talk. And that started what's now about a 13, 14-year project, the Human Values Institute in in Japan. And we started teaching, you know, the interface between mindfulness and how it helps train and cultivate deeper compassion and how that leads to more resilience in life. We work with healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses. We've done a lot of work with teachers. I lead uh, meditation retreats and spiritual uh, pilgrimages in different places in Japan. And more and more, we're doing work in, in America. And six years ago, I think, I was invited to Pittsburgh to give a talk to 800 family doctors. And after that event, after that talk, many people came up and talked to me and said, it sounds interesting. Would you like to come back? We dove in and we're in the process of training 18,000 UPMC nurses in resilience 
through uh, developing mindfulness to help cultivate compassion, leading to more resilience. We're working closely with the mayor, William Peduto. At his request, we're working with law enforcement, uh, with uh, Scott Schubert, the chief, and his 900-plus people there to bring more compassion and resilience to the Pittsburgh uh, police force. So before all this happened in Pittsburgh, we set up about seven years ago this group called Altruism in Medicine Institute to carry on the work we're doing in this interface between medicine and healthcare professionals and their health, particularly their emotional mental health and training, uh, compassion, mindfulness, resilience. Altruism in Medicine has a mission, and our mission is to enhance compassion in healthcare. And the way we go about that is primarily through education. Teaching in medical schools, nursing schools, and other health professional schools around the world about compassion and the friends of compassion. And now we're beginning to develop curriculum that will then go into these professional schools that will be part of what the students learn alongside of anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and pharmacology. The next one will be compassion. This is something that's very needed now because in many places in the world, the healthcare systems are showing signs of cracking. We're trying to be ready and provide that peace that can, to some extent, heal our existing healthcare systems. Why do you think we're suddenly seeing mindfulness and compassion becoming so important to so many different realms of human activity? Recently, I had an email with a friend, and we were just mentioning how much fear and anxiety there is in America. And we mentioned maybe Americans are suffering kind of PTSD, uh, all the trauma that we as a country have gone through the last number of years. You know, certainly that's true in medicine. The rates of burnout now from very good research studies are showing about 50% of, of physicians are burnt out. And burnout here mm -hmm. means they can't find meaningful relationships in their work environment. It also means emotional exhaustion, where they just don't have the energy and the desire and the, the passion to do their work caring for others. We don't know the numbers for nurses, but the estimates are probably similar, and that research is ongoing with nurses. I just came off of two 12-hour shifts. Um, when we work in the intensive care unit, we tend to do seven or eight days in a row like that. Within my hospital, quite a few of the nurses quit. I've definitely had colleagues that have retired early, um, others considering part-time work and just reevaluating their priorities. I don't want to leave emergency medicine because I love it. I just want to make it better. Fighting burnout for the sake of doctors. I'm going to check your strength. And their patients. Kate Snow, NBC News. You know, the system is very difficult. I'm now talking about healthcare in America. And that's not just America. Uh, and it's not just healthcare. And so living in this kind of environment, people are stressed. The rate of suicide among doctors is three to four times the general population. Every day, one doctor takes her or his life. 
about 400 physicians kill themselves every year. So things are very, very tough and people are at their wits ends. They're burnt out, they're depressed, they're not happy, they're angry, and it affects relationships, it affects their life on deep levels. So it's no brainer you know, to then from that step, take the next step to say, well, you know, our our systems are breaking, we've got to do something about it. How is mindfulness and intervention in terms of helping with all of that? Why is it effective? And how have you seen that play out during the pandemic, where the stress rates have to be even through the roof, as we've heard? Mindfulness is more of a tool. It allows us to look inward and see what's happening. It also allows us to be more present, Most of the time, we get caught up in the future. We're planning, we're expecting, or we're in the past. We're going over stuff and we're saying, you know, shouldn't have done it that way. And we're spending less of the time in the present. Mm. The present moment is healing because we're not thinking. And so it allows us through mindfulness, practicing mindfulness, to be more whole and to heal. So then it allows us to practice something I call emotional hygiene, which is first recognizing through mindfulness our negative attitudes, thoughts, feelings, emotions. And then we learn methods, techniques to then work with those negative feelings, emotions, and thoughts to transform them into their healthy opposites without suppressing anger into tolerance and compassion, jealousy into appreciation, arrogance and pride into humility. If we can learn to focus our mind even a little bit, we're going to be more successful in training our minds to be a little more compassionate and therefore more happy. I wonder, as you've made the case to the healthcare industry, even in the city of Pittsburgh, to police, You must encounter pushback from folks who say, it sounds great, but I'm busy. I've got a lot to focus on. Um, That's not part of my training. You know, don't try and impose that on me. How do you work with people to get past that resistance to open up to the possibility of this for them? We do encounter a lot of pushback. You're right. I think we try to be gentle when someone pushes back around compassion and, you know, the whole constellation of positive stuff, I recognize that they're hurting and it's a defensive move. So I honor that. I I don't push it down their throats. And, you know, we try to be gentle. We try to work with it. I also recognize that certainly people like in law enforcement that where trust is a big issue because you need fellow officers to be at your back in a potentially violent situation to maybe save your life. So they have to develop trust with me too, if we're going to, you know, go down this path together in a very, you know, effective way. And thirdly, they're right. This is not something that they've been taught and it's not something that has been part of their job description. So we, I, and we have a lot of work to show them. We know that they're hurting a lot and slowly they're now starting to gain some trust and they're opening up into some of that pain that they all carry. And I think that's an important step. Then you can start to look at ways that, you know, we might be able to make us 
healthier. And I also bring in a lot of the physical stuff because these are not separate. How the physical toll of being burnt out and being in fear and having a lot of anxiety, the physical toll it takes on us. And they often can hear that easier. So it's another step going towards the emotional stuff. I'm I'm fascinated about the realm of socially engaged Buddhism and how it how it addresses exactly the sort of tough issues that you were just describing. Although dealing with the life and death decisions that doctors have to make is tough enough, but I'm also thinking about a society grappling with racism, a society grappling with otherism, partisanship, deep divisions and hatred. There's a lot of rage, and there's a lot of righteous rage in a sense of certain things needing to happen and to change. I'm curious, when you talk to people about mindfulness and compassion, do they see that as at odds with taking action and with expressing the rage that they may feel? Sometimes they do, and I, and I think that part of it is a little misunderstanding of what is compassion. So the word in Tibetan is ningje, and the word in English, compassion, doesn't, you know, do it full justice, because we often bring in Judeo-Christian understanding of the word compassion. Compassion is a very active activity. The end of the spectrum of compassion that's most compassionate is being compassionate towards your enemy. Mm. It takes guts. (laughs) Right. And so that really dovetails nicely into the area of people and and, and institutionalized racism and parochialism and and gender bias and other ethnic biases that, that people have and institutions have. It really requires an investigation that's done with trust, that's done without blame, and done without a lot of anger and then try to rectify those problems. So when we do that without anger, we're practicing compassion for everyone, even the so-called you know, members of the institutions that might in some groups be seen as the perpetrators. They're also suffering, and we need to also treat them with compassion. Uh, the same thing with law enforcement people. I mean, most of them are really decent human beings. There are some that they don't get it and they don't treat people well. And and so we need to deal with all those people with compassion. But sometimes we have to be tough. It's a little bit like tough love. It's like the parent, you know, who's got an adolescent or an older child that's acting out and, you know, doesn't listen to the peaceful stuff. You know, you don't physically beat them, but you have to get tough. Um, and your heart is really, you know, that's the best for them. So it's a little like tough love. There is actually data that mindfulness uh, and meditation in particular as a practice produces meaningful, concrete changes in the body. You've actually been part of some of those studies. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of meditation in terms of what it does for us physiologically and, and why we may be thirsting for it as a culture? 10, 12 years ago, a group at Princeton under uh, Jonathan Cohen and a group at the University of Wisconsin-Madison under Richard Davidson, they studied long-term meditators, and they ended up studying about 11 or so people, and they asked the question, are their brains the same or different from other people? What they found was that the couple things. One, the prefrontal cortex. They found that that area was bigger anatomically uh, than other people in the long-term meditators, and that 
looking at blood flow studies, it was more active. Well, that area is called the executive function center because it's where the highest level of cognition occurs. And those higher levels of cognition are things like planning, imagination, creativity, compassion, uh, better social relationships. That happens there. So the long-term meditators have those areas more advanced. Secondly, with electroencephalography, EEG, you know, where they put the leads across your scalp and have got all the wires hanging down. Right. They found what they call gamma waves, and there were bursts of them throughout the cortex. And they mean synchronicity. They mean harmony. They mean that the neurons are firing together. It calms our mind. And because of that, because we have a clearer mind, less clutter, we can make better decisions. In addition, there are health benefits, both mental and physical. So on the physical side, our immune system is strengthened. Good thing, particularly during the time of COVID. But in general, because the immune system does a lot more than fighting off viral infections. It helps in cancer surveillance and many other things. It also helps with longevity. There are some early studies showing that epigenetics is positively affected. So when genes are turned on or turned off to make healthy protein is positively affected through meditation. And that affects even our telomeres, which are the ends of our chromosomes, which confer longevity and less chronic disease. All that's improved with meditation. It also helps with depression, with our emotional health. There's a lot of studies now on improving anxiety and fear, also PTSD. And now there are studies that show even as little as, you know, a weak intervention to train, for example, compassion through compassion meditation can have lasting positive benefits. So you don't need to meditate you know, 10,000 or 50,000 hours to get the benefits. So not all of us have to go back in life and become a Tibetan Buddhist monk to realize the benefits is what you're saying. Yes, more focused, better decisions, clearer mind, less clutter, so better decisions. Also, we are more engaged. We naturally waste less time. We also have more energy, so we get less tired. Compassion, cultivating compassion, of course it's for the other person who we are treating or hoping to treat with compassion, but it has a, it's a two-way street. It helps us, and we all know this. When you're being compassionate, kind, or you're sharing, or you're, you know, you're listening without judging another person, you feel good. I'm sure there are a thousand other questions I could ask, but we're running out of time. What I've loved about this discussion is so much, but the way in which life leads us to unexpected places. So many people who listen to this will have their own completely different stories, but they'll identify with the ways in which the universe has led them to wherever they are or need to be. I'm struck by the work that you're doing and the value it brings in giving people an opportunity to pause and find some space in their life to reflect, to maybe think about the choices that they make, to have the tools to be able to make them in a calm manner that does not feel as harried as life so often does. You know, we do live 
in this absolutely crazy time where we're making ourselves crazier by checking our devices all of the time. <laughs> and they're designed to keep us occupied and busy and hopping from one thing to another. The other value that the work you're doing represents is in terms of this notion of compassion, and you use the word Ningje, I think, as the Tibetan version of it. Yes. I love that. Specifically focusing on it as an action, a much more action-oriented concept. We tend to too much associate compassion with pity in this society. And the compassion you're describing is close to empathy and that that there's an awareness of what others are feeling but it's action oriented so you're not just opting into those feelings you're actually moving into a space of doing something about it and i think this is exactly what people be they in medicine or in the nonprofit sector are all wrestling with which is at a time of unbelievable need and demands how to find the space and the and the courage, if you will, to be at your best and to do the best that you can. I just want to say, Dr. Barry Curzon, I think the work you're doing to help folks get in touch with that, it's captivating to talk about. I really appreciate the time that you have spent with us today and it's been fabulous. 